Hello, and welcome to episode 28 of Encore. I'm your host, Tony Franchetti. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Easter in Ireland, GIA's first recording by Steve Warner and the Newman Vocare Ensemble. This album offers a taste of the rich fabric of sounds found in Ireland. It is a merging of traditions, four-part choral singing, ill-in pipes, low whistle, harp and harmonium, strings, organ, and guitar. All of the selections are directed toward the joy of Easter. The available octavos and downloads include choral anthems, hymns, refrain songs, psalmody, and liturgical items for use in any parish. This recording also honors one of the newest and most celebrated saints, St. John Henry Cardinal Newman. This recording, along with the octavos and a downloadable PDF containing selections from the recording, is available at giamusic.com. And with that, I'm honored to welcome on today's guest, Steve Warner. Steve, I can't thank you enough for taking time for a quick interview the week before Holy Week. I'm excited to talk with you and excited for our listeners to learn a little bit more about Easter in Ireland. How are you this afternoon? I'm well, Tony, and thanks for the invitation. It's a great pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Of course, pleasure is all mine. So we'll start with a, a basic question, just a little bit about your upbringing, maybe about uh, how you grew up and how you first got interested in music. I, I feel like I should be sitting on a couch right now and staring at a ceiling. It all started when I was 12 years old. <laughs> um, actually, it all did start when I was 12 years old, which is really kind of crazy. My brother and I, at Christmas time, he got a um, a guitar, a Sears Silvertone guitar, and I got a BB gun. And neither of us, we were in a huge family, neither of us thought that our parents would be any worse or any of the wiser for it. So in the middle of the night, he got the BB gun and I got the guitar. And already I was listening to hooked on things like Crosby, Stills and Nash and Peter, Paul and Mary and all kinds of other trinities that were going around at the time. So I started learning how to play guitar by listening to all these tracks. I suppose you could throw John Denver in there as well. Oh, very nice. Yeah, really clean audio, beautiful guitar work. James Taylor as well Mm -hmm. was really inspired by that but not inspired by the scene that went with it. I always felt that I had a calling to work in liturgy. And then along came the St. Louis Jesuits, and they lit my fire in terms of understanding that more contemporary forms could be out there and have integrity. Right. So you mash all of that together, and that's kind of how I got my start, um, working in parishes, as most people did. And then very lucky to uh, go to the University of Notre Dame for my master's degree, which was in 1979, about the same time that I got together with about another half a dozen people and started what became the Notre Dame Folk Choir. Mm-hmm. Um, so from 1980 on until 2016, I was in the Office of Campus Ministry and the director of the Folk Choir. I actually started out for the first years being the director of the Catechumenate at Notre Dame. But then the choir became pretty much an all-consuming thing, and Notre Dame was really great by way of letting me run with that. Mm-hmm. And um, then in 2016, after more than 35 years at Notre Dame, I was able to stay with Notre Dame and move over to Dublin. And, and that was an extraordinary experience to, first of all, to have the vision of the Archbishop of Dublin say to us at Notre Dame, there's this precious church in the middle of Dublin um, and we can't we can't really keep it moving. And Notre Dame very generously provided staffing and support and um, 
financial resources as well to this, still going on to this day. So um, I'm, I felt very privileged to wrap up my years with Notre Dame by five years, even though this little thing called a pandemic happened in the, <laughs> yeah, in the midst of it. Right. It was still an amazing opportunity for me to be a part of that um, missionary venture. Okay, excellent. No, that's great to hear. Very interesting. And we'll touch uh, a little bit more on uh, your time at Notre Dame and uh, University of Notre Dame Folk Choir a little bit later. But again, as I mentioned, I'm super glad to have you on a very appropriate time the week before Holy Week. So we could talk about your most recent recording with GIA, Eastern Ireland. So can you just tell us, our listeners, just a little bit about that project and maybe your inspiration for it? Sure. When I started talking with Mike Silhavy about this project, and the, the interesting thing about it, it was more about let's do a recording, let's capture some of what was going on in Ireland, but there wasn't a clear focus yet to the recording, except that what I knew was that I had absolutely fabulous musicians to work with. I've never been the kind of musician that wants to approach a project without a clear focus. Mm -hmm. uh, and so a lot of dialogue back and forth between Chicago and Dublin, and a, a theme began to emerge, a focus began to emerge, which was, wow, we've got a lot of music that's really focused on the Paschal Triduum here. Um, and could we actually pull that together in such a way? And there were a couple of holes that needed to be done and a couple of things that I really wanted to kind of tackle. Um, one of which I think you've got in your play in, on your cue list, Tony, and that is um, I see his blood upon the rose. Right. So those are significant. That that piece, for instance, significant piece of Irish poetry written by Oliver Mary Plunkett, who was one of the um, one of the martyrs of the cause, was was killed during the Easter or as a result of the Easter uprising. So and and a fervent Catholic as well. So these things kind of were swirling around. And finally, at what came to point was we could do a recording of music from the Easter season. And that's what ended up happening. So we were uh, it was kind of a fun sort of workshoppy sort of environment where we're all in the kitchen together and rolling up our sleeves. And out of that came the idea of Easter in Ireland. And after that, it all kind of fell together. I was really fortunate to do um, a commissioned work of one of Dolores Duffner's texts. So, and and the rest of it all was just beautiful. Some of it ancient Irish music. So, and you can get a, a, a taste of that as well as we move, we move forward with some of the clicks. So, yeah, yeah. no, that's great. Uh, thank you for for le uh, letting us know a little bit about behind the scenes of the project. Of course, that is available. You can find that at giamusic.com you could search it by its title easter in ireland or by the product numbers uh, product number for the cd is cd 1072 and uh the downloadable pdf containing selections from uh from the collection is g10124 so you could find it online and order it there and at the end of the interview we'll play uh, a handful of clips that uh steve's chosen for us just to give you guys a little bit uh of a clearer picture uh, of of the project so we look forward to that so you also have another new uh, project with GIA coming out. Um, it's a new antiphon project, the Newman Antiphons. So can you tell our listeners a little bit what to expect with this project? Yes, I can. So the idea was, um, and this got hatched on a bus ride. Uh, this was last summer, and I was actually back in Dublin with a lot of my colleagues and was very fortunate to be able to go back because when my wife and I actually left Dublin and I went into retirement, 
everything was still closed. The churches were closed. We couldn't say goodbye to our parishioners or any of this stuff that we've been working with for five years. Mm-hmm. So we were able to go back. Uh, Notre Dame sponsored a trip for my wife and I to go back and to be able to say goodbye to all these wonderful people that we're working with. And we were on our way back from Belfast um, in Northern Ireland. And my colleague, Father Gary Chamberlain, put throughout this little idea about, you know, we've got all these beautiful entrance antiphons and um, for the season. What would it be like to put some of those together in the style of writing that you do? And I was intrigued by that and said, well, if you're open to being the place to do it, so because I'd always want to have a place where we could try it out first, mm-hmm. and I was going into retirement, I said, um, if you're willing to try it, then I'll write them. So uh, this is this is the way I approach this task. There's a wealth of beautiful Advent hymnody that's out there. And uh, I can name like six hymns that I would never, ever want to see foisted uh, out of the liturgy because they're just such beautiful things. And so why, if we do entrance antiphons that are primarily more of a chant-like fabric to them, I would hate to see that hymnody go down the drain. So the way that I constructed it and the way I, I proposed it to GIA um, was to actually do them in in such a way that they could be done as a maybe prelude or gathering that would segue uh, into an actual Advent hymn. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, one of the pieces, um, one of the one of the um, entrance antiphons is written in the key of F minor, and at the bottom of it, I put down suggested Advent hymn, and I was obviously looking at readings as well, although these are very interchangeable. Suggested Advent hymn, The King Shall Come When Morning Dawns, which happens to be in F minor. So the idea would be that you could actually use these entrance antiphons as a way to segue into a familiar Advent hymn and not feel like, well, if we have to choose this, then we're not going to do the other thing. Right. So um, that's the set of, there's a set of four of them right now. Uh, I know that they're an editorial at this point. But we have we have boldly called them the Newman antiphons because actually they were tried there. And my colleague in uh, Dublin, Dominique Cunningham, put them before her choir. And I was actually able to listen to them afterwards. And it's like, whoa, those worked out pretty well. Yeah. So that's the idea behind it. I would like to, I want to try to be a bridge builder. I don't want to I lose any of that precious hymnody that we've spent years learning but at the same time that we have that beautiful and enriching tradition of the entrance antiphons from the Missal and want to try to be able to use that as well. So that's the idea behind it. Uh, I don't even know yet. We don't have a product number. We can start the buzz on it, but we have no product numbers or anything like that yet. But I'm very excited about the idea of it. And maybe it'll move into maybe the pur- the other purple season and um, an- another idea with Lenten season as well. So that's where I am with that project uh, in the midst of us staring Easter in the face. So Yes. Excellent. No, yeah. thank, we appreciate you giving us a little sneak peek, uh, something for all of us to keep an eye on and look forward to though. So that'll be great. From the next question, you touched on this a little bit earlier on, but uh, as the founder and director emeritus, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your time at uh, University of Notre Dame and specifically, you know, working with the uh, University of Notre Dame Folk Choir. Well, that was the greatest opportunity in my life um, to work with an ensemble of uh, really faith-filled, enthusiastic, just supercharged young men and women. 
it started out being a small ensemble, as I told you, maybe about six or eight vocalists. Mm -hmm. I was a very keenly aware of the fact that that small I idea needed to be a choir in a place as big as the Basilica of the Sacred Heart. And I was convinced that um, the repertoire could grow if we kept looking and mining. And there was a lot of things that were being written, most of them from both GIA and World Library and OCP. So we were integrating all of that. But we were also going through our own spiritual and musical growth as well, because at one point we were just doing music, I'd say just, but we were doing music of the St. Louis Jesuits and music by Marty Hagen, Michael Jonkus. And yet, at the same time, the as we got, I would say, better at that, good at that repertoire, some of the repertoire actually started coming from our own ranks. Uh, we started making visits down to the Abbey of Gethsemane, where my closest mentor and friend was Father Krasaganus Waddell. Um, and actually, some of his music will be making a showing uh, throughout Holy Week as well this coming week. Um, so we were being influenced by a variety of different um, compositional schools, if you will. And then we also started learning um, what I would call masterworks, um, pieces by Handel and pieces by Haydn. And we found that we could move very fluidly back and forth between all these things and not have to choose. Uh, I would also name drop and say that one of, one of my favorite contemporary composers from the Chicago area was Paul French. Mm -hmm. And um, we were learning some of Paul's material. And so this just became this big amalgam of repertoire. And it didn't have to be kind of solidly stuck in one sort of uh, lane by way of genre. Right. The lane that kind of unified it all was, did it have integrity? Was it beautiful? Um, did it add to the liturgy and add to people's prayer? So we found ourselves being in a, a wonderful situation where we could sing music from South Africa. We could sing music from the uh, that was more Eurocentric. We could sing music by Morton Lauritsen. Um, it, it was all demanding and it was all beautiful, but um, we had a very rich repertoire by the time we were, um, by the time it was time for me to say, nunc dimittis, I've done what I can. <laughs> but by that time too, the choir was between 50 and 60 people and um, auditions were snapped because there was plenty of street credibility to the ensemble. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, it was a touring ensemble. So they had a great uh, tradition of going around the world to all kinds of different places in the United States. So it was really a remarkable thing to watch it grow and watch um, the spirituality of the choir grow with the repertoire. And I also watched the spirituality of the assembly and the Notre Dame campus grow along with the folk choir at the same time. So these, those were, as we would say, those were halcyon days. They were really remarkable days to be a part of such a, a beautiful growth experience. Yeah, for sure. It's it's always interesting to hear, you know, how the, the foundation, how everything was built and then just over time, you know, it growing into what it is today. You mentioned just six or eight vocalists turning into 50 to 60, you know, person ensemble. It's, it's just incredible to see. Um, and just hear hear the story behind it, you know, uh, by by the the founder himself. So that's in incredible to hear. Next question I got: Are there any octavos you publish with GIA or under the WOP umbrella that you'd like our customers to take a little bit of a closer look at? So one thing that just came out from Eastern Ireland that I think would be an interesting thing for people to take a look at um, is a piece called "Taste That Your Eyes May Be Opened." It's a mantra approach to a communion antiphon. And 
you may, it's cleverly disguised because uh, we all know Psalm 34, taste and see. But, and we drop that, we, we drop those two verbs and just, oh, it's taste and see. Mm-hmm. But when you actually unpack that little phrase and think, taste and see, do we, do we see with our taste buds? It's a very, it's a very, and, and yet we throw it around as a sort of commonality thing, you know? Yeah. But it's a powerful phrase to think that your senses can actually open up your eyes to things. So I actually took that Psalm 34 setting and opened it up a little bit more uh, to say, taste that my eyes may be opened. Yeah. So taste that I may be illumined, uh, illuminated. And so um, that's a that's a new setting of 34. It's it's like um, eat this bread. It's like a mantra based thing, but it's not quite so straightforward because it actually goes through a loop of key changes in the midst of the piece, which makes it a little bit more fun for the guitarist and the chorus. And yet it's still short enough for people to be able to sing. Uh, that's a piece that I think has uh, interesting integrity. The other piece that I would say from Eastern Ireland, and it needs a little bit of explanation, is a piece called Exalt Ye Heavens. And it is blatantly based on the exalted, but it is not to be used in place of the exalted. The reason why I wrote that piece is because you have that one beautiful time in the liturgy when the newly baptized spread their light around the church. And there is to be a hymn or an antiphon to take place there. What I've done is I've created a metrical, uh, joyful hymn setting with two sets of verses. One set of verses for the actual Holy Saturday celebration, the other set of verses for the Easter season. So you could actually learn the antiphon, and then you could tack on the new set of verses to get some mileage during the Easter season as well. Yeah. Some people have, um, when I first brought this to the liturgical composers forum, and where we all take out our steely knives and we wreck <laughs> each other's music, and they said, this isn't supposed to be done. It's not It's not the exalted. And and yet, and then one of the other composers said, would you read the note at the bottom of the page? It says, this is not to take the place of the exalted. It's for another moment in the liturgy. So I think it actually is a wonderful piece, and it's it's got a, a real sort of, almost Elizabethan bounce to it. It's a cappella, um, but it can be done with guitar and organ. Um, in fact, most of my pieces are written that way so mm-hmm. that um, they can use both contemporary sense of guitar playing, but also uh, with the organ or the keyboard with it as well. So those two pieces, um, Taste That Your Eyes May Be Open and Exalt Ye Heavens are two from the Eastern Ireland collection that are, um, I think, probably very universally adaptable to a parochial scene. Great. Okay. Excellent. So you guys heard it from Steve himself, a couple of pieces to take a, a closer look at, especially um, go along with Eastern Ireland here, the theme of, theme of our, uh, our conversation. So we'll wrap up on this next question again. Thanks so much for your time today, Steve. This has been great. And apologies that this is a little bit of a broad question, but kind of a way to bring us full circle here. So what's next for Steve Warner? Well, I found, first of all, what's next is supposed to be retirement, which is a very slippery word I have found. Um, it means nothing to a lot of people. And I'm glad for that. I'm uh, in the midst of working on uh, outreach to several dioceses that have asked me to come in and to become a resource to kind of get the troops back going again. 
I'm very aware, and I think many people are keenly aware of the fact that we may be done with this pandemic, but the pandemic is not quite done with us yet. Right. And there's a lot of there are a lot of churches and a lot of speci- specifically a lot of choirs that are still in the midst of uh, rebuilding right now. So one of the things that I've been trying to pace myself on is to make myself available to various dioceses uh, to be able to um, come in and do a workshop or do a, a day of spirituality and regenerative enthusiasm in the art of liturgical singing. So that's one thing that's going on. I'm, I'm constantly writing and um, find myself drawn right now more toward poetry and uh, sacred poetry. So not ex- not scriptural, but there's plenty of writing that's out there that I think is deep and beautiful and spiritual, having to do sometimes with creation-centered, but still very much in a worshipful environment. So those are things that I find myself turning to right now a little bit by way of compositional projects when I have the time to do it. So um, it's a busy time. It's going to be for the next few weeks for me. At the end of April, I'm going to be uh, down in Mobile, Alabama at Spring Hill College. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And um, after that, we'll see where we go. Okay, excellent. No, thank you for that. And that's a that's a good message is, you know, it's a common theme that we're hearing uh, that everything is still kind of in the process of being rebuilt, you know, uh, as you mentioned with the pandemic. So we thank you, you know, for being out on the front lines and, and doing the important work of helping that. That's, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're lucky to have people like you out there doing that. It's a joy to do it. Awesome. Okay, we are done, Steve. That wasn't too bad, right? <laughs> Not at all. Awesome. Onward, onward to the triduum. Yeah, yes, sir. Okay, awesome. my friend. Well, thank you again, buddy. I appreciate you and uh, safe travels for, thank for you this very week, much. too. Yeah, we'll talk Great. soon. All right, all right, take care, buddy. Bye-bye. Okay, we hope you enjoyed that interview with Steve Warner. From now until Easter Monday, we're going to offer 10% off Steve's Easter in Ireland recording. Use the promo code ENCORE10 at online checkout. Again, that promo code is ENCORE10, E-N-C-O-R-E, and the number 10. I'm going to play four one-minute clips from Eastern Ireland. The first clip is titled, Exalt Ye Heavens. Exalt ye heavens and lift up your voice, let hearts be glad. The second clip is Psalm 139, If You Find Me.
third clip is titled, I See His Blood Upon the Rose. final clip is titled Easter Day. Break the box and shed the night. Stop not now to count the cost. Hither bring pearl opal sword. Wreck not Thank you for tuning into episode 28 of Encore. Until next time, take care, everyone.